Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hello and Yalimad, everyone. It's your host, Sony Gossam. We're back with another episode. And on today's show, we have Nana Nurani, an engineer at NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Now, Nana didn't exactly study for a career in aerospace. In fact, Rice University, where she went for college, didn't have an aerospace engineering program. And on top of that, Rice wasn't even Nana's first choice for college but she knew from a young age that she wanted to make the world a better place and help the people around her. She was always curious about how the world works and often found herself gravitating towards activities that involved math and science. Years later, Nana says she's happy with where she's at and she's learned a lot of lessons along the way from how to deal with rejection to what makes a great interview. In this episode, she pulls back the curtain on some of the projects at NASA, like how astronaut pee and sweat get recycled and how dust on the moon can turn into rocket fuel. Nana has also helped co-found Cake Meets Sherbet, an app focused on fostering smiley relationships. While Cake Meets Sherbet is a project that Nana is proud to have been a part of, she has since exited to focus on her career. So this episode will revolve around Nana's work at NASA, how she gives back to the community, and her passion for making the world a better place. I hope you enjoy. My name is Nana Narani. I am an Ismaili Muslim here in Dallas, Texas. I am a chemical engineer. I work at NASA Johnson Space Center, and my career is very different from what I studied. I work on robotics instruments to basically do an experiment on the moon to look for water and figure out how we can use the resources on the moon and on Mars to sustain life so that we can stay there for longer durations and stay there more sustainably rather than having to come back to earth and resupply and things like that. It's on the cusp of like science and engineering because we're using the data that we use from these experiments to design larger systems. And so we're kind of doing both of those in parallel. And so there's a lot to learn. Can you walk us through a little bit about like how you go about doing these projects for finding water on Mars and the moon? Yeah. So we basically work off of the work of people that come before us who have set us up for success in a lot of ways. So for this instrument, for example, my group has been working on it for maybe eight years, something like that. And it was just someone's brainchild idea. They wanted to try it and they tested it on a volcano in Hawaii because the dirt there is very similar to the dirt on the moon. And from there, there are little iterations of how can we improve this device. And I get to come in at this time where we're kind of getting ready to fly this instrument. And it's a really neat time because I'll be able to say, I put something on the moon, but it comes from all of this work that previous people have done. And so it's mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, software engineers, all these people with a really big vision. And we're also building on previous missions. Like this isn't the first mission to confirm that there's water on the moon. There was one that came before it called LCROSS. It's basically a satellite that looks for hydrogen molecules, oxygen molecules, and 
while they were launching that satellite, they had an idea to take the rocket that was launching it and crash it into one of the craters on the moon. So when they crashed it, all of the water came out of the crater, along with some other volatiles, which is just gas that contaminates that water. And then they flew a spectrometer over it to discover which different contaminants are in there and how much water is there per amount of, we call it lunar regolith. That's what we call the dirt. So we have all this data and we're just trying to get more and more. So there's actually a mission flying this year called Viper, and that'll fly a drill onto the moon and it'll actually dig into the dirt and then get a much better analysis. That's very, very interesting. Whenever people tell me I don't know that many people that work at NASA, but when people say that they work at NASA or you think about someone working at NASA, you just kind of think about rocket ships and people flying through like a zero gravity chamber or something. And that's it. That's like the extent yeah. of that. So it's just really interesting to learn about their projects. I think in your description, you were talking about something called a, a spectrum. What was it called? Spectrometer. Spectrometer. What is that? That's basically a device. It can be any number of things, but it looks for a certain electromagnetic wavelength and different chemicals emit different amounts of these wavelengths. So hydrogen has a different signature, oxygen has a different signature. And basically this thing uses light and it passes over the chemicals and then it can detect what's there. So we're actually working with something called a mass spectrometer and it ionizes the particles. So it just uses an electrical current and it separates the chemicals based on their mass and their charge. So it's just different ways we have to get clever about discovering what's on the moon, right? So we have to figure out in the most lightweight, compact, space-rated way, how can we know what's out there? Wow. And once we design this entire instrument, then we have to test it in the conditions of space. So we put it in a vacuum chamber, we put it at really low temperatures, we put it at really high temperatures, we spray dust at it, because lunar dust is really, really abrasive. It'll damage everything. Wow. So we have to figure out how to circumvent some of these obstacles. Most of the water is in these craters. So there are two paths to generating this life support system on the moon. One of them is going after the water and you can use it to drink, you can use it to shower, you can use it for things like that. You can grow plants on the moon. The Chinese actually did an experiment on that with cotton seeds. But there's another path where you take the minerals on the moon in the soil and you concentrate solar energy on it, you pass methane over it, and you extract oxygen. So wow. you can make oxygen for people to breathe. So if the lunar water turns out to be very difficult to obtain, then we're going to go after the oxygen in the dirt. It's like changing the world, right? Just the concept of what we think is out there and like how we can convert things from one thing to another. It's very mm -hmm. cool. Can you tell me a little bit about how you landed those internships and consequently your job? Sure. So I think it was my junior year that I applied to NASA. Basically, one of my professors sent out an email that there was an application for NASA. There were two days to apply, so we needed to get it in really quick. So I did it that night. I completed the application and then didn't think about it until I got an interview. Then I had a few days to prepare for the interview, so I scheduled a mock interview at my school and made sure I was really prepared because in the past I had had interviews and I sometimes when you get nervous you just procrastinate and you don't prepare. So I had done that in the past and I really wanted to make sure I didn't miss this opportunity. So I used the career services. They told me to just anticipate 
what kind of questions they would ask, frame everything in a star context. So make sure you tell stories about the projects that you've worked on in school. And then I did exactly that. They didn't ask me anything about space, which was very surprising. But I think just based on my passion for my major and my curiosity and willingness to learn, I think they really liked me. Can you tell us a little bit about what you meant when you said framing things in a star context? So that starts with explaining the situation, providing people with context. So that's the S. And that kind of just gets everyone up to speed on what's the problem. Or really, like, was this in a class environment that you did this project? Was it at an internship? You're kind of setting the stage. And then the second letter, T, stands for task. So that frames the specific purpose, the specific problem that you're trying to address. A stands for action. So what did you do to solve the problem? What did you do to learn more about the problem? What did you do to find a solution? And then R is result. And that's where you share like after everything is set up, after you've done your action, <laughs> what was the end result? And it can be positive, it can be negative. As long as you learned from it, that's kind of what they're looking for, right? Like one of the questions they asked me was, have you ever had, like explain your team dynamics and like what role you play in a team? Have you ever had issues with someone on your team and how have you dealt with it? So everyone anticipates life is not perfect. Things happen and you have to learn and grow from them. So I remember in my interview, I talked about uh, for this biodiesel project, we had to go to the dining halls and cart over all of this waste cooking oil that smelled terrible. It had food in it. And we had to like ship it back to our lab and carry it back. So it was on wheels. It wasn't crazy heavy or anything, but I think we hit like a bump on the sidewalk and like a bunch of it spilled middle of campus. A bunch of people walked there. It was like right by the library. And we definitely needed to take care of that really quickly. So we all got together and I was like, hey, what if we use cat litter? Because that's really absorbent. Like it absorbs their pee. Maybe it'll work for oil. I know someone who has a cat. I can get it real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so then we tried that and it worked. And we, I mean, it wasn't like the ideal oil spill cleanup solution, but something that was quick and easy and could work. Nina eventually aced her interview with NASA and began her first of three internships in the fall of 2016. She took a whole year off of school, which would have been her senior year, to take advantage of the NASA Pathways program. I asked Nina after our interview what it was like for her to make the decision to take a year off from school. And she said working at NASA was a no-brainer. It always kind of turns out better than you expect because, yes, I did miss out on senior year with my friends who I'd love dearly. I met them at orientation week freshman year, but then I still got to hang out with them. They were still in Houston and I ended up actually meeting new people that I wouldn't have talked to before because of that last year at Rice. I had to try a little bit harder to make friends. So it all honestly worked out. Getting into the Pathways program at NASA allows you to complete at least three rotations on different teams removing the need to reapply for another internship at the agency. But some people do as many as like six because they want to get as many different experiences as they can. Especially if you start younger, you can definitely do that. And I personally feel that you learn a lot more at work than you do at school necessarily because you're applying the knowledge that you gained. So it sticks more. Nana's first internship was with the Battery Group. It's literally a group focused on batteries. Right off the bat, it was like invention, invention, invention. I didn't expect it. It was wonderful. 
I did not have a background in mechanical engineering or designing anything, but that's what I got to do. And I didn't get penalized for not knowing. They just said, watch videos, like learn. There are other interns, like work with each other. And so we developed something called a calorimeter. And basically it measures how much heat something gives off when you burn it or when it uses all its energy. So that's basically calorimeter. It comes from calories, like the calories in your food that measures how much energy is in your food. It's the same thing. We're trying to figure out how much energy is in a battery because on space station, if any of these batteries catch on fire, it'll be awful. Like it'll spread everywhere and we have to develop a fire extinguisher that'll work in space. So just quantifying all of this is really important mm-hmm. so that we can design like heat sinks and devices that'll prevent that heat spread. So now it's been patented wow. and this just came off of like my first internship. I didn't know anything. <laughs> How does that make you feel like knowing that you were a part of that and now it's patented? It's amazing. Like, I think we definitely had a dream team. There were other people that did have those mechanical skills, but I still got to contribute a lot. I got to test a lot. And it was like me and two friends basically just working on something. So it was really neat. It's nothing like inventing Apple or anything in a basement, but it had that feeling to it because we were having fun while we were doing it. After that, Nana went straight into her next internship, the In-Situ Resource Utilization Group. That's a mouthful, but for shorthand, they call it ISRU. Nana likened it to the book and movie called The Martian. Now, I have yet to watch or read The Martian, so I still wasn't quite sure what the ISRU group does. And so for those who are like me, I did some Googling. Here's what NASA's website says. I quote, To live and work in deep space for months or years may mean astronauts have less immediate access to supplies. NASA will send cargo to the gateway in lunar orbit to support expeditions to the surface of the moon. However, the further humans go into deep space, the more important it will be to generate products with local materials. End quote. And now that practice is called in situ resource utilization. In other words, here's where Nana will walk us through the dust to thrust project, where NASA engineers are trying to turn dust on the moon into rocket fuel. And for the longest time, it was a research and development type of group. It was kind of the oddball. Nobody really took it seriously. It was very far off. And that's what excited me about it. I was like, there's so much to learn here and there's so much to develop here. You know, it's the future. So I definitely wanted to do an internship there. And I learned so, so much there. First internship, I learned mechanical engineering. Second internship, I was also wiring things and developing like software requirements and communicating with all these different stakeholders, ordering parts, putting together an entire test stand on something. It was on a a, a gas dryer, basically. So we have this entire end-to-end system of how we're going to take water on the moon and turn it into oxygen and hydrogen, and that's rocket fuel. So we called it the Dust to Thrust Project. Because you're what was it called? Lunar dirt. It's called Dust to Thrust. Oh, Dust Because you're taking lunar dust and you're turning it into rocket fuel. So in between, there are a lot of different components. When you take water and you split it into hydrogen and oxygen, those turn into gases, but they have a lot of water still entrained in them. Very humid gases. And when you cool those down to store them as rocket fuel, the water will freeze up your pipes and it'll burst. Just like in Texas, we had that terrible right. winter storm yeah. and everybody's pipes were bursting. So to prevent that, we have something called a gas dryer and it uses, you know, like silica gel packets that you find mm-hmm. in your shoes and stuff. Those yeah. prevent things from being too humid and damp. 
Oh, I didn't know so that. Uses, yeah, so it uses that same technology, but we try to find things that are better, that are very reusable, because we don't just want to throw away the silica gel. We want to reuse it because we're very far from Earth. It's hard to get these things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my experiment was taking a gas dryer and making sure that we can regenerate that silica gel, essentially. That's awesome that you're able to break down these really unfamiliar concepts to other people into things that are familiar, because I think it really helps with the understanding component of what you actually do. I always have to try to relate things that I work on to ordinary things, like with my parents, just so that they understand what I'm doing, because they're like, you're always on your computer. Are you actually doing anything? I'm like, yes. Dana's third internship was with the Microbiology and Thermal Systems Division. That's the people who design the spacesuits, that's the people who design the life support systems on the space station. And the group that I worked in specifically did thermal, active thermal control. So in space, because there's vacuum, you can't just turn on a fan. Like there's no air to take away your heat. And so we have to come up with creative ways to get rid of heat. Space is just very, very fascinating and that presents all these different challenges. But specifically, I was working on a heat exchanger, which is like an air conditioner for space station, but more long duration. So everything on space station works beautifully right now, but has like little problems. So for example, on space station, a lot of the machines get fouled up by microbes, bacteria, something called biofilm, and then the operation gets worse. So it degrades. And so for long duration missions that are far from Earth, We want to make sure that we get rid of this bacteria. We design something that is able to withstand those levels of bacteria. So the other thing about Space Station that's really cool is that we recycled like over 90% of the water that's used there. So astronaut pee, astronaut sweat, all gets recycled and they can reuse it to drink. So that's basically what I was working on. Um, It was a heat exchanger that collects, not the pee, It was a heat exchanger that that collects the sweat from the air that the astronauts are in and condenses it into these little pores, had these tiny little channels and um, some suction. So it was a pump with a pressure difference in between that provided some suction. So the air and water comes through this channel and passes through a fluid loop where we treat the water. So here on Earth, we use chlorine to disinfect our water and we use hydrogen peroxide to disinfect our water. So on space station, we tested these technologies, but we also want to see what else is out there that'll push the technology. We also tested with xenon arc lamps, which produce ozone. It produces UV light. And I think they test this in Europe to somewhere like on a massive scale, but essentially ozone reacts with the microbes and oxidizes it. And it kills it, basically. So that was one of my projects, testing the traditional solutions that we use versus these new solutions. And the neat thing about UV is they also want to use it to disinfect astronaut clothing Mm -hmm. because right now it's not reusable. Like they use it for a while and then they throw it away. And they can't really have washing machines on space station because that's very energy intensive. It uses a lot of water. So they're trying to find ways that don't use all the soap and water And so UV is one of the big contestants right now. The really cool thing about aerospace research is that it's applicable to some things on Earth. And even like the Bill Gates Foundation hired aerospace companies to develop some technologies in countries 
to fix the sanitation problem, to develop toilets that work on very little electricity. Mm-hmm. Because that's the same kind of problems that we work on. We try to minimize the power, we try to minimize the mass, and make it very easy to use. Is that something that you would want to work on in the future? Do you see yourself deviating from aerospace and tackling issues on planet Earth? Yeah, I think most people at NASA, it's their goal to find a spin-off, an Earth-related spin-off for something that they're working on, because ultimately that'll make a bigger impact. All of this is really great, and I think it will be very useful to us when the Earth's biosphere is evaporated and destroyed by the sun and everything. Yeah, I mean, that's in like, I think, half a billion years or something. Like, it's pretty far off. I don't think we need to make Mars colonies now, but obviously it's a really cool vision. For example, one spinoff technology here at NASA is one of the NASA engineers developed a cochlear implant, which helps people who have lost their hearing completely to hear. So it's something you wouldn't think of that's NASA related. Yeah, but these skills that you develop here of like design, testing, iterating, all of that, it's useful in just getting your brain to think in a different way of how can I solve these problems that we're having here on Earth. So that's definitely the goal. I think that was the goal even when I got into engineering as a freshman. I was like, I want to work for AKDN. (laughs) But there's a a lot of things that I would like to learn before I go into that. So I think NASA is a really, really great test bed. I was also very interested in developing environmental technologies. So the group that I work in now is actually pretty related to that because we try to find how can you convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. And that's an issue that we're dealing with here on Earth. We have so much global warming mm-hmm. due to carbon dioxide. So finding ways to scale up this technology would be really, really, really awesome. I just got a couple of other questions before we let you go. I do want to talk a little bit about going to Rice University. Was that your dream school? It was not. I wanted to go to MIT. So I actually did college expedition when I was in maybe sophomore year of high school and went to Boston, saw Harvard, saw MIT, just fell in love with MIT, all the rowing and everything and and the geniuses there. But I applied there. I applied to Rice. I applied to a few schools in state, Georgia Tech, Caltech. Very clearly, my heart was on MIT. Rice was my second choice, but I was like, I want to leave Texas too. Like, I want to do my own thing and get this full college experience. But I didn't get accepted and I cried a lot. (laughs) But Rice was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because one, it was a very small, close knit school. And so you got to know everybody there. I actually think I like Texas much better than anywhere else because MIT is cold. I could go home whenever I want. And I discovered this part of myself too, that yes, I like my freedom, but family is also like you miss them when you're away from them. And so I think that just teaches you that life doesn't go as you plan and you might not get your top pick, but sometimes even better stuff comes out of it. Even with NASA, I had a few interviews before that and it was for Chevron and other companies and I didn't get those jobs or those internships, but that made me still keep applying and that made these better opportunities come my way. So these opportunities that much, much better aligned with what I like to do and what I like to learn. Yeah. I always like to think of it as if something doesn't work out, it's because there's something better for you that's planted in store and you just have to keep at it and don't let the rejection make you feel kind of closed off. Just keep going for it because there's something out there, something out there that's like designed for you. If there are other people who want to work at NASA or students that want to get an internship at NASA, 
or that want to work in aerospace, what advice do you have for them? And how should they prepare for something like a job application or an interview for the aerospace field? I think if you already know that you want to be at NASA, that's like 10 steps ahead of where I was in college. Knowing what you want to do is half the battle. And from there, seeking out opportunities, that'll build you up and get you ready for when you want to start working at NASA. I think that would be your best bet at landing the job so that you're very comfortable talking about concepts. And you have all these projects behind you that can say like, hey, this started as a piece of metal and I turned it into a rocket. You feel really good about that. They feel really good about that. But there are a few programs for high school students. One is called High School Aerospace Scholars. And it's, I think, a week-long camp at NASA. So you get to work directly with engineers at NASA And then I think there's a few months of preparation for it. So they give you a curriculum so that you're not going in blind. So that's one really great one. I think it's for juniors in high school. And then I would say the best program that I've seen for high school students is FIRST Robotics. It's very hands-on. You do competitions and it might not be perfectly related to rockets or space, but that's a big skill that we need at NASA. Those are all skills that translate very well because there's mechanical design, electrical, and software design. And I actually did like a workshop with these high school students and they were teaching me a lot. (laughs) I was a full-time engineer, but I was learning a lot from them. And we were basically building robots within a week to climb ladders and stairs. And it was within like a thousand dollar budget. And there were these military people who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on similar robots. And they were getting to see, okay, With this high school talent and with these cheap materials, you can get the same performance. It's a lot like SpaceX. You can just undercut the competition because when you get to see the fundamentals of how you design, develop, test something, anybody can do it. And that's the fascinating thing. Like you can start when you're in high school, you can start even when you're in middle school. There are so many kits online for learning robotics and stuff too. But if there isn't something at your school, start one. I'm sure there are plenty of teachers who would sponsor it and give you advice too. Also, definitely feel free to reach out to me. I did not have a robotics background, but, you know, I'll like try to help in whatever way and at least try to connect you with people who do. But yeah, just trying to build up your portfolio and your experiences so that one, you get through the process of people vetting your resume and two, even more importantly, so that you have something to share and talk about in your interviews and so that you don't feel this imposter syndrome. You want to feel very comfortable and proud of what you've done. Nada's interest in NASA started when she was in the fourth grade. She remembers visiting NASA during a school trip. We did like those overnight camps and saw a lot of Space Center. Building 9 is really, really neat. So that's where they have all the rovers and something called Robonaut. So it's this robot that's on Space Station and fixes things. He has like really long arms. That was pretty fascinating and just in the sense that you never see these things. Mm -hmm. And now I see them at work, which is really crazy. But I thought this was like a one and done deal. I would never see this again. Working at NASA had never been at the forefront of Nana's mind until that professor, who she spoke about earlier, told her class about the application. When I saw the application, I said, why not? (laughs) Like, what's the harm? So... I think that's the thing in a lot of things in life, like you will get opportunities that come your way and sometimes they're out of left field. They're not in your path or your vision, but they're good opportunities. So you shouldn't let them pass just because you don't feel prepared enough at that moment. You should jump on it and then just 
use that anxiety of, oh, I don't know anything to study as much as you can and use your curiosity to just, even when you're just excited in your interviews, that really, really conveys and that really, really shows. And people just want to work with you because maybe you don't know everything yet, but you're showing that you're willing to learn and you'll put in the effort. Like when I did that first internship, when I'd come home, I spent all night just trying to learn. Work was long, like they weren't paying me for that, but I just wanted to know what all the acronyms meant. I wanted to be up to speed on everything. So just showing initiative, showing passion for what you do, I think that's more important than having a perfectly laid out plan. Mm -hmm. We get to talk to a lot of astronauts and hear their inspiring stories. And I mean, most of them, it has been their vision to become an astronaut and makes sense because it's very, very difficult to achieve. There is one who applied, I think, 17 times before he got it. And he's brilliant. He invents things on space station. He invented a new coffee cup. He's a chemical engineer too. He does these crazy experiments. Never underestimate yourself because you have the capacity to learn anything. You were a two-year-old that didn't know anything at one point. And now you went to college, you accomplished all these things. And so definitely don't undersell yourself. And then just kind of think back on all of the experiences that you've done and what that tells you about yourself. Like for me, my freshman year, I did like an engineering design course and it was on a project where we were developing biodiesel from cooking oil. We were basically using the waste cooking oil from our dining halls and trying to reuse that in our lawnmowers and our buses. So that tells me that I really care about how can we make things reusable? How can we not have waste? And so that's very similar to what I'm still doing here in this group. So if you kind of look back on your experiences, you can see what what you're drawn to and like what motivates you. And so for me, it was recycling and reusing and how can I manipulate these chemicals to be useful? If you're confused on where your career path takes you, just figure out like, what is it that you Google late at night when like nobody's paying you to do that? You know, like what naturally is interesting to you? I love, I really love, love, love that you said that. I also really like the point um, that you've been making about having that curiosity and passion. Because even like in journalism, sometimes there are people who come up to me and they're like, how do I get a job in journalism? And I'm like, you know, you don't have to necessarily major in journalism as long as you are curious about the stories around you and you're interested in digging deeper and like, that's all you need. Yeah, because it shows you're not just there to get a paycheck. Like you're there to improve what's already there and enhance their company. So everywhere you go, you shouldn't think like, how am I going to benefit from this? You should think, how are they going to benefit from me being there? You know, nobody wants to look dumb, but just it's okay. Like not everybody knows everything. And especially when you're new, you're going to feel a lot of the imposter syndrome. It's natural. Everybody goes through it. I think in every different field, like starting something new is a risk. Joining a new company is a risk and it's something you've never done before. And so it's unfamiliar, but that's when you know you're growing the most. I mentioned earlier that Nana loved math and science, but she also enjoyed school in general. It was just that she loved the thrill of learning challenging math and science problems. It was just kind of a natural gravitation. It sounds really nerdy, but I like to learn calculus. <laughs> like, whoa, what is this new math that nobody ever taught me? Every year was step up, you know, level up. So even in college, freshman year, I was like, this is the hardest thing ever. There is no way life can get any harder than this. And then it does. <laughs> but you like learn how to you make friends and you like do homework with them. And there's a sense of teamwork and community and accomplishing something difficult 
is very, very rewarding. So yeah. even like choosing chemical engineering as a major, I don't know, one of my advisors is like, are you sure? That's like one of the harder ones. That's like the hardest one. I was like, yeah, that's, that's the one. I'm doing it. I'm not going to be scared. So I think just being bold is always helpful. Nina is the oldest in her family and the quietest person in her family. She credits her parents and her younger brother for shaping the part of her that doesn't back down from challenges. Nina's brother, Shanil, is just a year younger, and Nina describes him as the opposite of her, someone who was involved in theater in school and once was class president. And Nina's parents are risk takers, she says. They emigrated from Pakistan in the 1980s and arrived in Los Angeles, where Nina was born. But just eight days after Nana's birth, Mr. and Mrs. Narani moved to Dallas. That's a lot of change. Like, you just had a baby. You're moving away from your family. Halfway across the country, they started a business, gas stations, when I was down there. And they worked their way from the bottom to the top, like a lot of our parents do. But, you know, like having all these changes all at once, it must have been so stressful. And even now, when I'm applying to jobs, I'm like, I don't want to move away from my friends and family. It's very difficult, but they were very ambitious. And especially when they had me, they said, everything I do is for this kid. I am living for this child. So I definitely have a lot of appreciation for everything they've done for me. And they've also just really taught me to do things that I'm afraid of. I think as a kid, I was very afraid of everything. I signed up for Girl Scouts and I would never go because I was just really, really shy. Academically, I wasn't ever scared, but socially I would get pretty scared as a kid. So they definitely pushed me and made sure that I didn't back down from opportunities because there are both components. You can't just be really, really smart and get where you want to go. Like you have to be able to communicate and kind of sell yourself. It's like in interviews, when you start working, you'll have to give presentations. You'll have to apply for funding for things. So it's really important to develop all of these aspects of yourself. Outside of working at NASA, Nina is pretty involved in the Smiley community. She's volunteered with iServe, and she's also been a part of a Jamathi mentorship program to help students get into college. And that was one of the most fulfilling things that I've done. Like, I can say I work at NASA and I've done all this cool stuff, but this was something that meant a lot to me because I'm helping someone with what I've learned and the challenges that I've been through, and I'm trying to help them get to the college that they want to go to. Nana also volunteers with the Smiley Professionals Network, most recently helping to put on virtual networking events. So I first got involved in IPN through the internship program, and that was basically talking to companies that had internships and talking to students and trying to match up the best combinations. And that was really, really great because I knew how stressful finding an internship was when I was in college. So it was nice that we have this program through Smiley's because even I'm sure employers love to have to see a Smiley students and to give back in that way. So that was how I first got my foot in the door. And then afterwards, I joined the IPN social hour group. So this is for emerging professionals, early careers. And this was very similar to something I'd done at work. I joined the young professionals group just because I felt like I needed to meet more people and make more friends and know people in different organizations. So we would do a similar thing where we would just host events to help people get to know each other, like game nights. Nana says her parents were her inspiration for her commitment to humanity. They've always been very, very involved in the Ismaili community, and they've promoted that in us as well. Nana's parents are now in their semi-retirement phase in their life. During this time, they've created a foundation to help immigrants from Pakistan assimilate to the United States, and they offer interest-free loans. 
I moved home for quarantine. So I'm not in Houston, I'm in Dallas. And we have like a foreign exchange student that's living with us. She moved here from Pakistan without any of her family to become a neurosurgeon. And like, it's a very big lofty goal, even for someone who was born here. And mm-hmm. she's leaving everything to pursue this dream. So yeah, I think they've shown me like one, pursue everything, every opportunity that comes your way. Don't underestimate yourself. And two, always give back. Always make sure you're lifting other people around you because that will give you a lot of fulfillment and it just benefits everyone, really. What do you do when you're not inventing really (laughs) cool things or getting to know people through social hour? (laughs) Yeah, I like to play tennis. I grew up playing basketball. I was always very sporty and somehow like sports is very much like engineering. You're trying to accomplish a goal together. You have a team. Your opponents are kind of the challenge, right? How do I beat them? But I've never been like a very competitive person, but I love, love, love playing sports. So basketball was a big thing growing up. I played soccer in like the national sports tournament when I was in high school. So I'm trying to start things like that again. And we have a really good friend group here and we don't have like a whole team or anything, but we play tennis, we play badminton and we go biking and just try to stay healthy. And then lots of board game nights, but it's good to give your brain a break. (laughs) Don't always be on and make sure you have fun. So I know you've shared a ton of lessons with us today. It's very informative. If there was one or two big picture things that people should definitely take away from this conversation, what would you want them to take away? I would take away one, you may not be where you want to be right now. Like there may be a lot of steps between where you are now and like where you want to be, but baby step it. If you're in high school and you want to work at NASA, there's a lot of time in between. There are a lot of little things that you can do to get where you want to be. And if one interview doesn't go your way, keep applying. That astronaut applied 17 times. And he told us that the very last time he thinks it was a clerical error. So (laughs) AC flew his paper across the table and like landed on their desk. So like, I think he had a really good sense of humor about it. Don't let rejection get you down and make the most of whatever opportunities come your way. And you don't have to fake it till you make it. Like actually have those experiences that you can look back to and say, this is how I've improved the world in some way. Even if it's just you learning a new skill, that's improving the world in some way. So always be growing, always be learning. And definitely don't be afraid to ask questions either. A lot of people out there want to help you and help them help you. Be curious, be engaged. Amazing. And finally, what's next for you, whether professionally or personally? So I found out recently that I can do like a master's program at work and they would pay for it. So I'm trying to build out this robotic side because I have more of the chemical background and they were very appreciative of me having this background because nobody else on the team did. I have helped in a lot of ways through that, but I want to like be like good at everything. So I'm going to apply to some robotics programs for a master's and I'm pretty happy with where I am. And so I think it makes it kind of difficult. Like I want to learn everything I can here before I think about where else I want to go. But I think everybody gets that time in their career where they say like, okay, I'm the expert or, okay, I've been here too long. I, I'm bored. Um, and that's the point where you start looking for other things to grow. I don't think I'm there yet. There's a lot to learn. So I can see myself at NASA for a good amount of time until I kind of round out my skills. I wish you the best of luck in applying to your master's programs. Can't wait to see where you go next. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you all very much for listening to this episode of the Ismaili Connection. If you want to get to know more about Nina Nurani or get connected with her, check out the description in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please give us a rating on the Apple or Google podcast apps and leave a review. A five-star rating goes a long way to help us boost our message. We'd really appreciate your support. If you're not ready yet, give us another try with the next episode. If you know of any amazing people with compelling stories, please do let us know. We'd really like to hear from you. Email us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Cassie Lee. Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Chico Momlin. Marketing for this episode was carried out by Samin Jawani. Also, many thanks to Zoha Momin, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN, and Farhan Manjiani for all his helpful guidance and charm in securing speakers. I'd also like to give a shout out to SimonSays.ai, the software that helps the Smiley Connection get its transcripts. Music included in this episode are Chill Out Atmosphere by Jorik Basov, 36 by Toby Lane, Wondering in Space by Diko Tomika, Contemplation by Nature's Eye, A New Day by Tattooed Preacher, and Climb a Mountain also by Tattooed Preacher. Thanks again for listening. Be safe and be well.